and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Dr. Steve Gladys is an executive coach, an author, he's a speaker, he's also a professor at George Mason University. He's published 26 books on leadership and thinks a lot about culture and the elements of a great leader. He's also a former faculty member at the University of Virginia and also served as an FBI special agent and was a decorated officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. He has a company, Steve Gladys Leadership Partners, that donates a significant portion of corporate profits back to the community. So he is a giver. I think you'll find him to be somebody who really cares about society and humanity. And we certainly get into his time working in our government and also working as a coach. So here is Dr. Steve Gladys. Steve, excited to chat with you. We just chatted for like 10, 15 minutes. And I, you know, I always joke the stuff before you hit record is usually the stuff I want on the podcast. So hopefully we'll keep it going here. Um, but where I thought we'd start is you're in a unique position for a lot of reasons, but perhaps the most unique to me is I have a almost seven-year-old boy and a five-and-a-half-year-old girl. And so we're at different life stages. And you are working alongside your daughter, Kim, writing with her. Uh, She's also coaching. I'm curious, what has it been like to work alongside your daughter? Well, it's kind of fun. I mean, Kim's grown. I mean, she's in her 40s. She's a a fully formed, um, a lot of fun. I mean, she is very organized and I am... I'm organized, but she's really organized. So she she's the one that always kept us on track and would put things together. She's very systematic. I tend I tend to be more organic. I love working with people. She tends to be very organized. Since uh, we wrote the book, however, she got recruited by Novavax to be a 
a vice president over there in charge of sales operations worldwide, and she's done very well. So that's where she is now. And since then, um, I've linked up with a woman whose name is Connie Whitaker Dunlop. And Connie is, was a professor at, at uh, Darden Business School in, in, uh, at the University of Virginia. So she, Connie and I have gotten together. I, I, I need somebody to kind of keep me straight. And so we we work a lot together. She's Connie's amazing, as was Kim. And and you know it'd be great to get Kim back, but I think I think I've lost her to the bigger world of COVID. You know, uh, but it was a lot of fun. You know, we had differences of opinion. You know, as you do with your kids and others. But man, I'll tell you, she really knows what she's doing. Um, and it was a lot of fun because she was so organized. Have you always worked in partnership? Is that something that you valued? Yeah, I like people. I like hanging around with people. I don't trust myself alone. <laughs> I mean, I can do things, and I have done a lot of things alone for years, but I work better when I'm talking to somebody else saying, hey, does this sound right to you? You know, no, I have uh, the best partner I have ever had, and, and have had her for fifty over 50 years is my wife. So we've been married forever, and my wife is very different than I am. And, and that she's quiet, she's very resourceful, she thinks a lot, and she says a little, little bit, but when she says it, boy, you better take notes. I say a lot, and maybe you can get rid of a lot of it, you know. I'm a little bit opposite of her, a lot opposite, but it's a it's a great yin-yang kind of thing, and I've, uh, you know, I study, I wrote a book on Myers-Briggs and personality differences, and I have always been of the opinion that we all need we all need our yin to our yang. You know, we really need somebody who's not like us to say to us, you know, have you ever thought about this? And that, that to me is what works. Uh, I, I I never send anything out unless somebody else has looked at it and said, mm, I don't know, this doesn't make sense. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday and we were talking about a friend of ours who's dating and the person's dating someone who's exactly like them. And they oh, said, it, this is either going to end beautifully or in a disaster. Um, what yeah. what do you think is, because I think about my wife and it's very much complimentary uh, yeah. strengths, I think. But I feel as though when we're younger and we're dating, we don't necessarily look for complimentary uh, yeah. uh, like skill sets or personalities. And I think it's kind of the same in business. We're not always looking for complimentary. We're often looking for partners that we work well with. And I, I, I'd love to just pull on that thread a little bit, because I wonder if we're looking for partnership the wrong way, whether it's personally or professionally. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I work, I've started working with partners. Um, a lot of partnerships in business explode. They just blow up after 10, five or 10 years. They, I can tell you horror stories about that people who, who who are in offices who knew each other since they were young in offices right across the hall who, who haven't talked to themselves and each other in, in six or eight months. I mean, it's ridiculous, but but it happens. And um, so I, what I think partners really need is, is as a coach to help them talk through what they're doing and keep them from, uh, it's almost like um, a couple's coaching, you know, a psychologist and you know, and you're, you're a psychologist. Um, so, uh, I have two partner, two sets of partners now, different companies. And once a month, I, I meet with each of them separately. And then once a month, I meet with them together. And I have them raise issues that they raised with me that they said, you know, this isn't working right. And I, you know, I don't force them. I just say, do you want to talk about an issue that you raised with me? Because now they know that they've actually said it out loud to me what the problem was. And then they oftentimes in the in the in the meetings together, they start talking about it. And we've resolved a lot of problems that that partners get themselves in. But I, I agree with you. I think people initially look for people like them and and the and you should be looking for people not like you, you know, because they just bring that other piece of the puzzle together. You know, the uh, the Greeks, um, it's interesting the Greeks had this uh, this notion of soulmate. The idea was when you were born, Greeks believed that you had two head, that you had uh, you had uh, two arms, you know, four arms, four legs, and so forth, and that it, you were split at birth, and that you spent your entire life trying to find the other half. That's mm. what they. That's how they. That's a, they came up with this term soulmate, and I think that's ultimately what we look for. If you marry somebody like yourself, or you partner with somebody like yourself, the problem with that is that one of you has to play. Like if you're an extrovert and the other person's a real like hyper extrovert, you have to play introvert. You have to complement each other. You just have to. 
and and so by playing introvert all the time it takes a lot of energy for somebody like you or me yeah it, i'm thinking about partnership and i'm thinking both again personally and professionally yeah and i i read these stats recently i think everyone knows like most marriages you know it's about like 50 percent end in divorce but what people don't see is there's another stat that's really really important which is then there's another 15% or so that stay together, but actually are miserable. And so like, yeah. if you really think about marriage, it's like a 35, 30% success rate. Uh, if you're defining success as like well-being and happiness or whatever yeah. metric you want to call it, because a lot of other people just stick together because it's easier to stick together than to get divorced or they yeah. are technically married, but they aren't really in love um, or, or whatever it might be. And I think about partnerships in business as well. And I, I work with plenty of partners and I think it's kind of similar. Yes. You have the ones that need a divorce and buy each other out or sue each other and messy yeah. and yeah. awful. But then you have another set where they're partners and they're making it work because the business is successful, but they're not necessarily fulfilled or well or healthy. And so I think our, our notion of like, what is truly like a great, partnership personally and professionally it kind of reminds me i come from a lot of sports it's like baseball it's like if if you're in that 30 percent uh of partnerships where you actually truly love each other and you truly compliment each other you truly make each other better then you're a hall of famer um and yeah. it's like you're a 300 you know hitter in baseball um but i do wonder why we don't do more work before the partnership takes off. Like, I think a lot of times people just go towards partnerships out of convenience or out of the fact that they work well together or they're attracted to each other in some way. Once again, you could go personally or professionally. What would you do if you were advising somebody before they got married or before they started a business when it comes to the partnership? I, I would get them into, into um, a therapist, a, you know, a, a counselor that they, they would talk. That, I mean, the trick is, is to, is to, have a mechanism in place before you get in trouble, not when you get in trouble. So I would say to partnerships, I would say before you go to a partnership, find yourself an executive coach or somebody who, who can work with you. Or if you want a, a therapist as such, I'm not sure you always need a therapist. I think a good executive coach who can talk with each of you and then talk with you together and can facilitate um, this. And I'm not, and I'm not just saying that because I'm one. I'm just saying I, I don't, I don't think you always need a therapist to, to mind the, you know, what what happened when you were a kid and so forth and so on. I think it's more about what's going on right now, um, and and how do you guys feel about it? Um, so I think if if I were going to suggest anything, I, I would say the best gift that anybody can give anybody else would be, you know, get yourself a a, a startup coach, an executive coach in the beginning who can help you work together in this partnership and, and see the, the potential that's there and not wait until it's ready to explode. That's what happens. This is, it, it, it's almost like a, I hate to say this, but like a pimple that gets bigger and bigger and bigger until then it's really, really painful. These guys, uh, I think, and I say guys, men and women, let things go too far, I think, before they talk about. So I'd say, get a coach up front, get a guy like you. I, mean, I, think, I think what, I think what happens often is, with startups, people are are ripping and running. They're going fast. They don't have any money. Um, they're just they're just going. I remember talking to someone about this. I said, "Well, yeah, a startup should absolutely, you know, if you're a founder and you're just getting started, like having a coach is a great, great investment." And they're like, "No, all the money is going back into the business, and I don't have any time for anything else other than working in the business," which I understand. And I think once again, just going to personally, that happens too. All right, we're in love. You know, we're just ripping and running and going and things are good. Why would we, why would we sort of, um, you know, rock the boat, so to speak. I want to go back into your journey a little bit because sure. you've been in the Marine Corps as a captain. You've spent, you spent 23 years in the FBI. You know, these aren't necessarily startups, but these are major, big, yeah. I'll call them bureaucratic um, oh, yeah. organizations that also change the world. Right. And these are like, like big, big, uh, places that have a massive impact on our society. What what do you wish you knew about those places um, then that you know about them now? Looking back with with all the education, and all that you've done, like what would you have done differently as you navigated those waters? It's funny. I I, I love the FBI and I love the Marine Corps, and they were great organizations, and they were, and they were wonderful to me at that stage in life. 
But uh, I, uh, in fact, the, our, the book that I just wrote is called The Misfit FBI Agent because I really was a misfit. I was the typical FBI agent, the typical law enforcement officer is a very um, introverted um, sensor thinker kind of ISTJ in Myers-Briggs parlance. And I'm an ENFJ, you know, I'm, I'm at the opposite end of the scale. So I was always this guy coming in with new ideas. Saying, hey, let's try this. Let's... Bureaucracies really don't like new ideas. It's not that they're anti-new ideas. They're just, they're, they're about, they're about steady state and moving the, it's a battleship and not a canoe. And I love the canoe. So I would, I was kept trying to turn it and it didn't turn. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I made some changes along the way, but I, I think probably I would, I would have, if I could, if I would have known that coaching was around, I would have done that right from the beginning. I, Cause I'm, I think I'm like you in the sense that I really like people. I like communicating with folks. I like helping them. Um, I like coaching them. I, and by the way, basketball was my sport. I was a point guard and I love basketball. It's one of the most fun sports uh, there is. And I don't know. I I think I probably would, I think I probably would have done something different again. No, I, I am so grateful for what they did for me and where I am now. I would never want to disparage anybody, but I am a different, I'm a very different fit for them. And I, and I knew that, I knew that a year into it, it was, you know, I was like, oh gosh, you know, but it was, a, it turned out to be a great job. And I love the people I met there. So it's one of the best people that I've ever known have been FBI folks. If you knew it a year in, what caused you to stay that path? Stay, yeah, it's a good question. It's called family. It's called bills. It's called, you know, houses. And 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 I was having a lot of fun, though. I mean, I have to say, you know, having a gun and arresting bad guys and doing all that stuff is pretty cool stuff. So I and I did do a lot of that in the beginning. And then I, as, as time went on, I became the chief of speech writing. I was head of publications for them. I did the kind of and I taught at the academy, which is I. I ended up drifting to those very things in, within the organization. If you if you see it as a continuum, I drifted to those things because it was big enough to the things I really was good at. And and they met my needs. I mean, the FBI Academy was absolutely the most fun job I ever had. I mean, I was teaching, I was reading and I was writing. That's where I wrote my first book, my first articles. And that's where I got a taste of what it was like to help people. Again, didn't no coaching sort of didn't for me exist then. I didn't even know about it. Um, but I was doing a lot of it anyway, without knowing what I was doing. There's a bunch of different paths that I want to go in, but I'm, I want to just go on an obligation. And is there any regret about staying with it for as long as you did? I just had Andy Duke on my podcast and yeah. Andy wrote a book on quit. And basically that people don't, people should quit earlier sooner, and, sooner. And, and, and sooner. And, and yeah. yet I also think life requires obligation and it's not a sexy word but we we often have obligations that are important for us to also lean into and and serve um i just want to understand it a little better for you are you someone who like your ability to stay with things that may be difficult longer you're, you're pretty good at that or like how do you justify in your own mind like hey like it wasn't, it's not like you were, you know, in a factory or it, it, right. like, let's not, but and it's a pretty cool, unique job and you probably yeah. felt valued and special. And, but, but can you talk a little bit about your psychology as far as uh, your ability to stay with things that may not completely fulfill you then in maybe staying out of them out of obligation? Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned to you, I had a house and two kids and they had to go to school and college. And, and I was at a point in my career where, in fact, at one point in my career, it was five, only five years to go in my career. And and by that, I mean, I you get a a pretty good um, retirement from it. Such At 50 years old, you can you can basically, if you want to, just never work again. If you live modestly and well, you know, kind of, uh, you can you can live you can live the rest of your life, you know, because um, you get health insurance and all that kind of stuff. So if you make it to 50 and you've been with the FBI and you're in pretty good shape, at 45, I almost left to become a speech. I don't. I don't think I'll tell you. It's a. It's a very, very well-known company that you would know. It's a Fortune. Hell, it's a, probably a Fortune 25 company um, now. Um, but I, they asked me to, you know, apply for a job. Corn Ferry called me up. I flew me. I flew me up to this place and I interviewed and and was very. I was. I was kind of close to thinking about taking it. It was a lot of uh, money, prestige, the whole bit. 
and probably would have been closer to something that I would have liked, I think. But I, but I thought it through and I thought, no, I think I'll. And two of my friends, one was a, a big time lawyer in Washington, D.C., and the other guy was with Merrill Lynch and a vice president there. And I, they both said, hey, come on, you got five years to do. Do the five years and have some fun with, with where you are and make the best of it. And I did. I had a great time. And uh, then I. Then I then I got the what I would call the full scholarship and and when I left I was able to do whatever I wanted so I went to work for UVA and then did that for a while and ten years and then 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 finally I said to my wife I got to try my own thing before I before I exit this world and that's when I started this thing that's seventeen years ago so I've had a full career at this stuff and honestly this last seventeen years has been the most fun I could have ever wanted. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. I mean, I can't tell you how, how grateful I am about this whole thing. What's different about the last 17 years compared to the 23 years of the FBI? Well, you know, in the, it's kind of like you. In the morning, you can look in the mirror and say, hey, what do you want to do today? You know, and usually I have a schedule. I mean, it's but but I make the schedule. And if I don't want to do something, I don't do it. And if I have a client that I think I can't serve well or I don't really want to work with, I just don't work with them. You know, I'm at that stage right now where I had to, I don't have to do the work I do. Somebody calls me up and says, hey, we'd like you to come out and do this, this, and this. And I think, well, I'll do these two things, but I don't want to do the other three. I mean, it's really, and I don't care who they are at this point, and we're kind of we're kind of all peers at this point. And, you know, I it, I just like the options that are available. And, I mean, I wake up and I'm, I go to pizza. Every, I, my routine is really, I mean, I get up at five o'clock, I you know, I do a bunch of things to get ready for the day. And then I go to Pete's at seven o'clock, almost on the dot every day. I, I call my coffee ahead of time. So when I get there, it's already ready. I sit down for two hours. I had to cut a little short this morning because I wanted to be ready for you. But usually I do it for about two hours. And I've been doing that for 20, I don't know, 20, 25 years. So people say, how do you write so many books? I, say, I just write every day. So at Pete's is where you're using those two hours to write. Yeah, every morning. Yeah. I mean, you know. I would say on average over the years, probably five to six days a week. And when did writing become something you were interested in? You talk about being a speechwriter with the FBI. Yeah. You've written just to set the context on the stage here. You've written a book a year for the last 25 years or 26 yeah. years. And, and you're now getting, you're writing fiction. So it sounds like writing is yeah. a big part of your identity and a big part of how you like to think about the world. Were you someone when you were younger that people would say, Oh, you can write. Was it acknowledged? Was yeah. it seen? You know, it's funny. Um, I wanted to be a doctor. I want to be a medical doctor. I'm, I'm a doctor, but as my kids will say, you're not a real doctor, you're a PhD. Um, I, I, um, I wanted to be a, I worked in a hospital for six years in an ER, an emergency room. I, I'm, I'm pretty skilled at, at that kind of medicine. Uh, and I, and I were, and I, and these, and everybody thought I was going to go to med school. So when I went to college. I, I went to pre-med the problem was I didn't know at the time and I do now I'm dyslexic and all of but you know, I got some real problems, learning problems. And Did I you struggle worked. in school? Did you struggle yeah. academically? Not, I didn't. Uh, in high school, I, I just worked so hard. And in college, I worked really hard that I, I got around it. And I, you know, I, I worked around it. But when I hit organic chemistry and some of these heavy duty memorization uh, have to have it accurate, uh, it just didn't work. And finally, I just, I dropped out. I almost dropped out of school my freshman year. I, I, in fact, I moved out of my dorm and I then I moved back in before my roommates even knew I was gone. I did it over the vacation. And I and I switched into English because I was always pretty good at English. And that's when I, I found out I could write my, you know, I knew right away I was getting A's in English and and I was helping people with their papers and I was, you know, I was editing and tutoring people. I I mean I really got into it. That's when I that's when I knew I really could do this. And uh and from that point on, I, I always did some kind of writing, but I didn't get really into it until sort of later in life. I'm trying to remember exactly. It's an interesting question. I, I, I'm i going to, after this podcast, I'm going to try to find out. I'm going to kind of think back to when it really, when the switch really turned. But I uh, I think maybe when I was in graduate school and uh, I got interested in it and started publishing things. And no, I know what it was. No, I remember right now. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for this. But it and it was like nineteen, I want to say seventy five, and I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I transferred there by the FBI, and I was running to work every day, training for the Boston Marathon. And I figured out how to put my suits 
into the office on the weekends and I would I would run in in the morning at 4 35 o'clock for an hour and a half I'd get in the office I'd put my suit on I'd work all day and I'd come home on the bus and I got this routine down so I could train for the Boston Marathon and I I just I wrote the first article was a little thing for Runner's World called uh, the running to commuting to run or running to commute something like that and I wrote that and and they published it and it was like whoa this is pretty cool and so then I started writing and then I became an, a writer for them and for a bunch of other magazines. And, and, and I just, I just got into this writing and publishing thing. When I hear someone say, you know, I'm dyslexic. I think when we have kids who are dyslexic, mm -hmm. we think it's a negative and we only see how it, how it hurts them when it comes to their academics. And yet I've worked with people who oh, yeah. are, are dyslexic and are doing incredible things. They're, brilliant beyond measure and so i'm curious for you yeah. like how do you think about your dyslexia how like give me like the holistic view of of that well it's 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 kind of in a way it's the best thing that ever happens because i can do a workaround on anything i mean you know if you and i something went wrong i could do a quick workaround it would i can think i can honestly if you put me in a room give me two hours and say, write a short story. I could do that. I mean, I really could on, on nothing, you know, just a you know a piece of dust. I could write a short story. It's just, it, so it's given me this creative um, workaround mentality, very entrepreneurial. Um, um, I can get myself out of just about anything because of the, because in this, when you're dyslexic, you're, you know, you think you're getting switched around. I'm embarrassed by a lot because, you know, I'll get like, I, my wife just, we just did a purchase order number. And I, I went over it three times to make sure I had the right number. My wife said, you're missing a five. I go, how can that happen? How, I mean, how, I, I did it backwards. I did it frontwards. How can it happen? And she says, eh, it just happens. So I go, okay, fine. You know, you, so I have all these workarounds and people as filters to help me make sure I don't, I mean, before I publish a book, God, you should see the gymnastics that I go through. It's, it's, Nobody in the world would do what I do. I mean, it's uh, it's it's nutty, but I do it, and I because I've got a system now that allows me to do this thing. But it's 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 like I said, the, the difference between you and me writing is it's way harder for me to write than you. It just is, but I that's okay. I mean, I I know how to get around it. I think it's taught me to how to be creative and how to be resilient and persistent. And that's what ends up winning the day. It's not the smartest guy. I'm not the smartest guy. I'm not, by far, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm usually not the smartest guy in the room. I'm usually like the fifth smartest guy or the eighth smartest guy in the room or not even the smartest guy. In fact, if you're always the smartest guy in your room, in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. I had a client once who took copious notes when we would meet and he would scribble, scribble, scribble. And at the time he was a freshman in college. And I looked down at his notes and I'm like, man, he's a sharp guy. It's just, he, he's spelling things the wrong way. It's just not co coherent. And I said to him, I was like, have you ever been tested for anything? He's like, yeah. no, got tested, was dyslexic. Yeah. And his work ethic and his determination and his grit resilience through the roof, I actually assessed him. And like those things were 99th percentile on, on mm -hmm. those traits and sure enough, like he ended up not being successful, successful, as successful as he wanted to be in his sport, but he had yeah. developed this, this resilience and he ended up going to law school and finishing like top of his class yeah. um, because his, his discipline, like you're waking up at 5am, you know, mm -hmm. you, you need that. You need the routine. Then you need the space to be in Pete's uh, to go get your coffee. And then you, you block off those two hours. I think people that it comes easy to like, I just had my high school reunion. I'll tell you how old I am. I, I had our 20 year high school reunion yeah. and it's remarkable to interact with the people that were in the gifted and talented program or in the honors programs at school and are labeled from a young age and seen as brilliant and to talk to them about what they're doing or how they're doing. And I'm not so sure it's a leg up. Uh, I'm really not. I understand why it's a leg up to go to a Harvard or a Yale and and the networks that those provide and the doors yeah. that those open. I wouldn't argue against that. 
But I'm not so sure that the labeling that we do with young people, whether it's even as athletes or um, at their intelligence, and, and certainly Carol Dweck's work around mindset and the idea of having a growth just, mindset. I, honestly, God, I was up. just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. The mindsets that, that Dweck talks about is really fixed and, and growth mindset is, is really it. You're, you're, you're way better off being in a growth mindset. Yeah. You, you know, always being curious, always being. Uh, but I wonder if the dyslexia actually helps create more of a growth mindset. And I wonder if it actually, or if I have any sort of learning challenges, I wonder if it is a massive opportunity to create a growth mindset. Whereas if I don't have those challenges and high school's just easy for me, if yeah, you know. it is harder for me to cultivate that growth mindset, I don't know if she's done any work on like learning I, challenges I and growth mindset. Yeah, well, I I know Carol's work, and I and I've quoted it often in books, and um, I, and I respect it a lot. And I think I think it's I think it's at work a lot, especially with kids that have to struggle a little bit. You know, if you don't have to struggle, you don't you don't get the you don't get you know diamonds are made under pressure, right? I mean, they're made from a struggle of sorts, and I think uh, I think I I've never thought of it as dyslexia or any of any learning disabilities as being you know, things that really push you into greatness. But I do think, I do think if you take advantage of the opportunity, anything can be an opportunity that it's when you, it's when you say, it's when you sort of give up and say, well, I've got this terrible thing and oh, I, I'm never going to be any good at it. So I won't write, or I won't do this, or I won't try that. You gotta, you gotta embrace failure. I mean, my God, innovation is nothing but failure, failure after failure after failure. You know, I met Jeff Bezos, uh, when he, I hired Jeff Bezos actually, when he was just starting out, he had just started his Amazon, and I was at UVA, and we brought a bunch of publishers together at the Library of Congress, and we hired Jeff to come out and talk about this new company that was selling books online, whatever that was. Most of the mainline publishers, this is many years ago, most of the mainline publishers thought he was nuts, you know, and I didn't. I thought he was pretty cool, and I spent two hours with him one on one, and and I really got to like him a lot, and. And when you talk to these guys, this guy goes, "This is this guy's nuts selling books online." And ever people want to put their hands on these books. They they're never going to buy a book online. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I use Amazon all the time. My God, I bought two things yesterday. What made him uh, unique in those two hours? What stood out? Was his sense of humor. He had the funny. He had the weirdest laugh. Funny. Like, <laughs> he's got a really a funny laugh. He's got a great sense of humor, and his in his mindset was a growth mindset. He, he he talked about that the idea of experimenting and failing and experimenting and failing. In fact, he told me when he went to get his house out and went, when he went out to the West Coast, or not, I was just California or Washington. He he told the but he he loaded up his house in the I guess it was the East Coast. Can't remember where it was. Maybe it might have been Princeton. But he loaded up the truck and he they said, "What do you want us to go?" And he said, "Listen, I'll get ahead of you and I'll tell you." I mean, he drove ahead. It was he drove ahead of them and found a house. I mean, how many of us would do that? I mean that that's the kind of guy he was. He's he was he was real ad hoc. He took chances, um, and uh, I, what stood out to me was the fact that he was willing to expose him. These these publishers, he knew that what these publishers thought of him, but he didn't care. He was going to try it anyway. And my God, he he ate everybody's lunch, you know. And when you talk about mistakes, I want to shift over to leadership a little bit. Sure. Uh, what mistakes do you see leaders making? What what mistakes are you, you're around a lot of leadership? You're around a lot of big organizations. When you see them struggling or or, or not handling things well, what what typically is at the core of that? I think if I have to pick one thing, it would be not telling or showing people how much they cared. There's a thing called I, I studied uh, wrote a book called. Uh, uh, the trusted leader. I had to think about it for that. It was like five or six, eight books ago, but but it was uh, the trusted leader. And I studied what what form trust because trust is at the center of most of all relationships. That really, if you don't trust people, you know, it's hard to even have a conversation with them. And what we found out is this thing called the trust triangle that you you have to have character. Um, people have to believe that you're honest, that you fulfill that what you say is true and that you'll fulfill what you say. The second leg of that triangle is that you have to be competent, competent at what you're doing. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're supervising people that dig ditches, you better have dug some ditches in your life. Or if you're supervising people who have written things, you better have written some stuff. 
And you should have some competency in that link. But the, but the last leg of the triangle is this idea of, do you care about me as a person, not just as a worker? And, and if you have all three of those, the triangle stands tall. If you have a lack of any of those, it, it, flat, it falls. And you one that usually, usually kind of makes it fall is this third one, this idea of caring. Do, do you actually care for me or am I just a, another profit center for you or a, a way to get to where you want to go? And the guys, men and women, that, that do the best really care about people that work for them. It's, it's, and they care enough to say, look at you're not doing a great job. Let's get, let's figure out what's going on here. Why is that happening? You can be, you can be, you can tell people what they're doing is not good, but you do it in a way that's, that's helpful. My wife can tell you to go to hell and you'll, you'll thank her for it. She's just that kind of has that way. Yeah. So I'm definitely drawn to more transformational leadership. And those are the people I'd be drawn to, to work for people that don't just care about me, the worker, but care about me and the whole person. But I do wonder if that's the case for everybody. And um, like, I think of football and, you know, you had Bill Belichick, who's probably considered the best NFL head coach of all time. And along the same time, time that he's having success you have pete carroll right one is in new england one's in seattle and pete carroll's talking about you know we're going to win forever and he's talking about we're going to love up our guys and we're going to care for them and we're going to treat them well and bill belichick's just saying go do your job right and i would imagine for you marine corps uh, FBI, it's probably a lot more do your job. Uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but yeah, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this, but you know, I do wonder, is there, you know, ever a, um, and even like they, their quarterbacks, Tom Brady and Russell Wilson were very, very different, um, in, in how they led and the way they communicated. And so I'm drawn to the transformational leader. I'm drawn to the people that are, you know, in the yeah. foxhole saying that they love each other and we've got each other's back. Um, but I wonder sometimes if we glamorize um, the transformational leader too much. And sometimes people just need to be honest, truthful, create safety and just say, Hey, you do your job. Um, we're going to, we're going to, like I was in San Francisco when Bruce Bochy was the manager for the San Francisco giants. They won three world series and Bruce Bochy's whole thing is we're going to play the best guy. Like that's it. We're, I don't care what your salary is. I don't care. And that was like his primary driver. We are Mm going to play the guy who's going to help us win games. And it was more transactional. And the guys seemed to love him because he was honest, authentic, and there was no BS or no fluff. And so I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but I, can you push back on me a little bit as far as that compassion piece and and what I might be missing? No, I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I think even a blind pig can find an acorn. You know, I, I think if you, but if you're going to, you're going to train people to be good leaders, even in the, you know, they did study, they did a, a longitudinal study of people in the military and even in the military where you think, God, it's, it's chesty puller, high diddle diddle right up the middle of Marine Corps stuff. They found out that even in the military, the most revered generals were those guys that, that, that felt people felt that they cared about it. Uh, Stan McChrystal, I think would be a great example of that. And I, I got to know him because I used to write at a coffee shop where he used to hang out and guys like that are the ones that people remember the most and that, 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 and, and that, and that promulgate and, and, and the next level of leaders, you know, I, you know, if there's no doubt that you can get a, you can get a, 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 a Bobby Knight or a guy like that throwing chairs around and stuff like that it, but if people believe that what you, what you're doing is for their own good and that somehow or other, even though you're a, you can be a, pain in the ass, excuse my French, um, but that you you ultimately care about the team and the people on the team. Somehow or other, they have to feel that caring. I don't know how they feel it, how they get it, but they somehow or other get it. That's what flips the switch for most people. But if people think they, that you don't have, that you're in this for reasons other than the team or themselves or whatever, they just turn off. Well, you're hitting on something that I think is important to point out. And I use sports analogies just because that's the language I understand. Which you, which you understand, yeah. Like they're Tom Izzo with Michigan State. I've interviewed, so I got hired by NBA teams to go interview players at the NBA Combine. And so I'd interview all these players that played for all these different teams. And you could really get a sense of what they thought of their coach uh, yeah, at the yeah. Combine. And the Michigan State guys would come in and they would just be so effusive about Tom Izzo. And I think 
while Tom is tough on his guys, there's no question. They know he cares about them and you can be tough while still caring deeply about them, holding people accountable, not letting them slip, having discipline, like these things you can still do. And that can be seen as compassionate. Compassion doesn't have to be some soft, fluffy term all the time. Right. Yeah. No, compassion is about, I think really, um, there's a there's a sympathy is you know I, I I know your brother died you know my best sympathies thoughts and prayers are with you that's a easy thing that's all head um, empathy is hey your brother died that happened to me and when my brother died I feel so bad for you that that's head and heart head heart and hands is compassion know your brother died that's happened to me I'm coming over to take care of the kids while you go to the funeral we're gonna bring over dinner that's it there's there's it's it's a sort of an active thing where where people aren't just sitting back, they're actually doing stuff. And and whether it's staying at, at later practice to show you something or, or or whatever, you can tell when somebody really cares about you. And it, dogs can tell, people can tell. It's the same thing. You know, it's not hard. You know, and and when and when they think you're just in it for yourself so that you can be the winningest coach, I think people see right through that and they just go, you know. Yeah. And I think people are led when they're part of something bigger than themselves and they feel connected. And we often do connect with the heart. And as men, we don't always acknowledge that, but there, yeah. that's the connections why we hug. Like it's, it's all, it's all right there. Um, you started talking about teams. So let, let's go there for a second. Cause you've got this sure. other pyramid. You like to create pyramids and work with imagery yeah. in your books. And, pyramids. and so in one of your, uh, in one of your books, you talk about, you know, what is strategy? It's really a combination of people, culture, and leadership or a leader. Um, talk yeah. about strategy and, and how you think about strategy with the people you work with and the value of it and, and how to build strategy and how to how to be elite when it comes to being a strategic thinker. Sure. I, I the One of the books I just did is called The Four Elements for uh, – great team leaders it, it talks about it's so a picture big triangle and then within that triangle for four tri- kind of four triangles within that triangle so at the center of it is tell people to, to figure on learn how to be trustworthy that is the most important that's the heart of all this stuff and then then we talk about is are there uh, is to is to is to be a, a great leader you have to be not only establish trust with people but also be good with people um, put get people together who who complement each other who um, who are who are diverse who are in, engaged by doing things that they like to do. I always ask people when they work with me, "What do you like to do?" Because a lot of times they like to do stuff other than their job, so we figure out ways to let them do that. I call it the getting dessert along with your you know your eating your parrot, carrot carrots and peas kind of thing. Um, then we talk about culture, building culture. A lot of what you were just talking about was, do you have to build a culture that people will get stuff done and, and not feel like they're going to be penalized. There are sort of three levels. One is, is there psychological safety in the company or in the organization? Can I tell my boss the truth? Secondly, are we connected? Um, and the thirdly, do I have a purpose, sense of purpose of what I'm doing? If you have those three things, you build those, you bake those into your culture, you're going to pretty much survive uh, as an organization. Not only survive, you'll thrive. And the last is this idea of strategy. You know, are we heading in a direction a lot of leaders want to have a very specific direction. You know, we're going to be the, I don't believe that is necessary. I think what's necessary is most people want to know, are we going east, west, north, or south? Are we, we're, just kind of tell me where we're heading. You know, you don't have to give me the azimuth. You don't have to say 270 degrees in 13 minutes. You just have to say, we're going to go over here. We're going to attack this problem. We're going to attack that problem. And are you with me? Here's the problem. We're going to attack it. What do you think? And I think when people have this sort of general direction of they're going and somebody that's willing to to make mistakes along the way, experiment, try to find their way, listen to everybody's ideas, but but have the gumption to say, okay, I've heard everybody's ideas, we're going here. You know, and this is why. And you can follow me or don't follow me, but we're going this, we're going in this direction. That to me, that it's sort of that combination of of things, this idea of trust, the right people culture and this idea of a directional strategy the where are we going how are we going to get there and when do we know where how do we measure when when we've gotten there um is kind of what i sort of preach to people and it's it sort of works it sort of works out i mean it's uh um it's not it's not uh uh 
I don't think it's the only formula. I think there are other formulas out there, but we did a lot of study on what, what, what the great leaders sort of did and uh, what the research directed us toward. Um, and that's kind of my, my approach is kind of like, here's my research. What's your research look like? Let's compare them. Usually the guy who does the research sort of wins out. It's like COVID and all these other things, you know, you can talk to me all you want about what you don't want to do and what you do want to do. I, I, I'm big on evidence. I think we're similar in that we like being entrepreneurs, so to speak, and writing or podcasting or uh, coaching or speaking and, and having that autonomy and, and are comfortable in that space. I, for myself, am not sure how good of a CEO I would make. And I use that term in terms of like running more of an enterprise business. And for me, I think one of the things that would hold me back, it's not my strategic thinking it's not my people skills. It's actually my attention to detail. And um, so I found like, an, if you want to be like a great, great CEO, yes, the critical thinking, the strategic thinking, the ability to have a vision, like those things are critical. I put that in one bucket. Then I have this other bucket, which is, you know, can you interact with human beings and have emotional intelligence and, and inspire and connect with people. I think that's another bucket, but there's this other bucket, which is kind of like the, the legal bucket, right? <laughs> which is, you yeah. know, are, are you going to look at the contract, right? And are you going to dot all your I's and cross all your T's and, you know, make sure that things are done well. And of course you can surround yourself with a great CFO and a great general counsel, but that's the bucket for me that I don't see in myself enough. Um, yeah. And I, you know, some of my clients have that bucket, Um but for you, are do you feel like you're good in those three buckets, or is there a bucket that? No, that no not in that bucket you just mentioned. No, but I remember a story. It was a story about Henry Ford, and they, they it was a lawsuit um, involving Henry Ford at one point, and um, the guy was asking him all these questions about what he knew and what he didn't know, and he said, "Look at," Ford said to him, "He says, look at it. I there's a phone on my on my desk now. These phones no longer exist, <laughs> but go back." And he said, there were 10 buttons on that phone. He said, if I, any button I push, I can get the answer to any problem I need. And I think that's the way you have to think of it as it, that not all see some CEOs are lawyers um, and have a, a legal background. Others have a, a straight, you know, garden kind of, or Harvard business school background. But I, you know, I don't think every leader is, is formed the same. It's just, I think you would, you would just, I mean, if you were to form a bigger company and I'm, I'm with you, I don't want a bigger company. I, I like what I do and I want to keep doing what I do. I don't want to do be the next layer up away from the business that I, I mean, I love coaching. So I want to do coaching. I don't want to, I don't want to supervise 30 people who do coaching. I don't mind one or two here and there, but um, I, I think everybody's, you know, it's kind of different strokes for different folks. And if you're the whole idea here is, and I wrote a book about positive leadership and, and really happy. I studied happiness for like five years and it was the most fun time I've ever had because I was studying this stuff. And, the idea is if you're if you like what you're doing, if you can make a decent living in it and you're having fun at it, my God, why wouldn't you want to keep doing it? Why would you want to have a company just to have a company? Because you want to get rich? I some of the most miserable people I know are the richest people I know. Well, I think that question of what do you want is so, so important. And I yeah. love talking to my clients about money. I know it sounds ridiculous, but to me, money is often our driver when we make decisions yeah. on, you know, what our career is, where our career is going back to the obligation piece. I think a lot of us feel a sense of, we have to maximize so that we can provide. And, and for most people, it's actually a BS story that's in their head um, about what their needs are. And so I have my clients outline. I'm like, well, you tell me, what is it that you need to earn for your lifestyle? And I don't care if you want to have a private jet, that's cool. Like, let's talk about that and let's yeah. work toward that. If you don't care and you want to make sure that you can retire at 50, let's figure that out. Like, but, but that question of what you want is, is so it, it's often not discussed, um, with people. Yeah. And I think it is, it, it's such a big, big question that many people are like, I don't know. I just keep going and I keep getting promoted or, or I have my own business and I'm only earning X. I'm like, well, uh, how much do you want to earn and how do we get the business to work for you? And, and so I think we don't often think about that element of where we're going and and how it aligns with what we want. Instead, we think of titles and we think of um, promotions, but like maybe that's not actually what you want. Um, and I think it, it often a, gets lost. 
you know, there's a, there's a, I'll tell you, there's an interesting book called uh, Helping People Change by, uh, by David Boyatzis. Boyatzis is a scholar out of, uh, he's in Ohio. He's at uh, Case Western Reserve. And he's one of the, he's probably the, he's probably the most knowledgeable executive coach in the world. I mean, he's just, he really knows the research and neuroscience behind it. And uh, anyway, so uh, Boyatzis wrote a book with a, a colleague uh, called Helping People Change. And one of the exercises that I have all my clients do it now um, is, is I have everybody write down, where do you want to be 10 to 15 years from now? And you're thinking, and most people want to write about whether they want to be two to three years or even a year from now. And I say, no, no, 10 to 15 years from now. So if you're, you know, let's say you're 40 years old, you know, 10 to 15 years, you're 50 or 55 or so. And you're thinking, wow, maybe, you know, I want to be retired and I want to be on a boat and I want to be living in Miami. And I say, okay. So I have them write down the story of where they're going to be. I want to be living in Miami. I want to be, you know, on a fishing boat or I, I don't know what the hell I want to be. It doesn't really matter. But that, by constructing that that image of really, I mean, and honestly, that's where I want to be and where I want to live. By having that out there, then you can you can you can reverse engineer, which is what you do in fiction. You know what the ending is going to be, and you reverse engineer so it works out right. You you reverse engineer and you say, okay, what are you going? What's it going to take you to to be in that house on the water in Miami? It's going to cost you five million dollars to live there. How the hell do you get there? So, well, that means I've got to get this job. I've got to do this. And along the way, I'm going to have to do things that I might not love, but that I have to do to get to this, this thing. By having an, a, a target, you can't hit a target you can't see. By having a target that you can sort of vision, it makes all the tough stuff in between a lot easier because, you know, you, well, I'm doing it because I want to get to this house on the water with a fishing boat that I take out and, you know, and I had one guy want to be a, he wanted to take out fishing and he's doing that now. He's retired and taking people out on boats and having a wonderful time. So to me, it, it it's about that. Where do you want to really end up? What do you want? In fact, one uh, in coaching, the best question, um, is it, was it, was it Bengay or whatever his name is? I can't remember this guy's name is a book on coaching. He wrote a course. Michael you know, Bengay Stainer. Michael, yeah. Right. Yeah. Is he, the one question I think he asks? It's really great. Is as he's talking to people, and he says, "Well, what do you want?" Every time I've asked that question, people go, "Hmm, I don't," uh, you know. And until people know what they want, it's really hard to get to get them to where they want to go. And for me, at least, I understand why it's daunting and scary to vision out 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's not permanent. Like, let's just start having the conversation and we can adjust our sales and yeah. go in a different direction. But I think we often say stay in the present and too much of anything's a bad thing. And if you're not spending time thinking about the future, you're not necessarily being intentional with where you want to go. And by the way, same with the past. The past has all kinds of lessons for us to learn. We don't need to be present all the time. We need to also be reflective on the past. And well, how do we make sure we don't screw that up again? Or, or how do we come to be ourselves? Like I spend a lot of time thinking about my childhood, asking my parents questions about what I was like, because that is who I am. And a large yeah. part of who I am came from where I was when I was 10 years old. And so um, those things come to mind for me. Uh, the one thing I wanted to get to before we close is around sure. team team coaching. And, you know, I had on Alexander Kalei, who was the first person. Oh, to I know, Alex. Yeah, he is the first person to introduce me to team coaching at at Georgetown, and he sort of explained how he worked, and we had him on the podcast, and uh, sharp guy and thoughtful guy, and and really thinks about team coaching a lot. I know you've you've also spent time in team coaching. Uh, what's different for you about working with a team compared to an individual? Well, a lot of research was done at Harvard for almost twenty five years. When I was I was writing a book on on teams and I was almost finished with it, about 80% finished. This is the one I did with Kim. And I discovered this footnote about this reference to Harvard research. And I found out that there was, there were some guys named, uh, a guy named Richard Ackman and Ruth Wegman who had done 25 years of extensive research on teams. Basically what they found out is that, that everything we thought of, we knew about teams was kind of wrong. It's kind of like, well, finding out milk isn't really the best food for you or that, um, or that um, that um, you know that um, um, meat isn't isn't probably your best isn't probably your best go to meal, right? That 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 even though that that's been you've been told that for years, it's probably not the right thing. And what they found out that 
is that there were these six conditions that if teams had them present, they had an 80% chance of doing a great job being a high performing team. And if they, if they lacked any of these, they only had a 20% chance and that most teams were dysfunctional. In fact, teams head toward entropy all the time. It's like marriage. Unless you are, unless you're working on it, your marriage is kind of going one way or the other, right? I mean, it's kind of going up or it's going down. Nothing stays level, uh, especially in the relationship world. And what Hackman and Wagner found out there were there were the three essential elements of teams or conditions that if they were present, you know, um, and along with three enabling um, uh, conditions, that these six were together that. You know, yeah, and they they did they developed a a, a um, uh, an assessment tool that is is like an it's like an MRI of a team. You take it, you can you can plot you can spot the, the the problems right away. There's no debate about it. It's this is where you have to put your money and time and effort. And so that's what we do. We just go in, we we do an assessment of the team if it's an intact team, and then we we try to find the areas that they they've got some issues with. We show them it. We we work with them toward towards solving those issues and and then keeping themselves above the line and not below the line. Most teams are below the line. They won't admit it, but I can tell you right now, they I don't I don't think we've ever bumped our team. We we have one team that was above the line, but then they let it go for a while and now they're below the line. And they, this is what happens. People get on a plane and they're doing well and then they say, "Okay, we're through with team coaching." And I say, "Okay, but how about if we just do it once a month or once every six weeks to maintain They go, no, no, we're done. I say, okay, but it's going to be a problem. And here, we, we, this is now a year and a half later, this team's come back to us and say, we're in real problem. They're having real problems now. It, it's so interesting. I think of any relationship I've ever had in my life, and it's never always completely all good all the time. Yeah. They yeah. all take work. And I love the phrase, you don't wait till it rains to build a roof. And yeah, so right. like, teams, organizations, partnerships, everything that we've been talking about today, it requires roof building. What's the name of the assessment that you're talking about, the assessment tool? Team, the team diagnostic survey, it's called. And you have to, somebody qualified has to give it to you. You just can't do it. You have to go through it. it it's not rocket science, honestly, but, but you need to kind of know what you're talking about so that you don't give people the false information when you're coaching them. Yeah. And what are some of the dysfunctional themes that pop up on there that that cause teams to go? You called it below the line. I'm sure you're yeah. talking about like conscious leadership. They have this great video that I recommend people check out where they talk about being above the line and below the line. And, yeah, yeah. and, and there's all kinds of stuff there. But, you know, basically the, the thought there is that we all are wired to go below the line. And so Absolutely right. human beings make mistakes and we have bad moments and we have bad experiences and we get into survival mode, which is highly defensive and it reduces our ability to create and think creatively and work collaboratively. Um, and so I think that's what, what Steve's referencing, but can you talk about some of the things that this diagnostic tool uh, sure. helps you recognize as far as dysfunction in a team goes? Sure. First of all, do you have a real team? Most teams are not real teams. They're groups of people that, that are that are report to the same person they, they they're not interdependent and they're not real they're not small they're large 15 20 people meet once a week they report out they have shitty meetings pardon my french they have they have bad meetings because they report out meetings they're not really solving problems so first of all I, is it a real team and most of the a lot of times as crazy as that sounds they're not real teams secondly do they have the right people are there people diverse like we talked about before do they work together or not do they have the skills that they need or have they changed the skill level that you need now in the company the is there a compelling purpose for the team to, is it clear is it is it compelling this is something that people get behind um then is there a structure around the team that that makes it uh, um, able to solve problems as a team um do they have the right amount of support? Is there money? Is there, is there all this? Is there, oh, you know, they have information, education. Do they have resources? Do they have space and equipment, things like that? And then finally, is there somebody that comes in and can coach them? Now it can be, it can come from within, but I will tell you, that's probably not the, your best play. It's better to have somebody like us come in. We just, we just dealt with a, a municipality this last Friday, we went in and these guys were dysfunctional and fighting each other. And we said, you guys have to work together. Even though you're in two different divisions, you have to become a team together or you're never going to accomplish what you have to accomplish. And by the time we left, 
um, they were they were like really together. They had, we formed a, a mission statement, a vision statement for this new team. And we, we they don't even have a name yet. I said, give me a name and I'll buy you a T-shirt um, and we'll have we'll have shirts made about your team because you guys are ad hoc teams that are being brought together. Amy Edmondson at Harvard calls it teaming and it happens all the time. You have to get together to, to solve a problem and then then disperse. You don't have to be a team forever. Maybe you're a team for six weeks and then boom, you, have, you, you leave. But you have to have these elements and you have to have somebody working with you to keep it going. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. But there's something popping for me right now. You mentioned happiness earlier and spending yeah. five years studying it. You know, you're at the School of Wellbeing at, at Mason. A lot of that's coming out of Martin Seligman and University of Pennsylvania with yeah. positive psychology. And similar to you, I when I found out about this stuff, I did a deep dive. I was like, wait a second. You're telling me I can increase my happiness by helping other people, by going towards satisfaction and fulfillment by being part of a community or having family and having friends and, you know, all these sort of factors sure. that lead to us being happier. And I've since thought more about that. And I still value that research and that work. I think it's great and it's helpful. And when I hear you describe a team, I hear at some point it's, it's going to be dysfunctional. Like yeah. we, every team we work with is going to have dysfunction. I guess they're going to have dysfunction in it. It doesn't mean they're dysfunctional. And every marriage is going to have some dysfunction in it without it necessarily being dysfunctional. And every life that we live is going to have happiness in it, but it also has sadness. Like you can't, you can't get away with any of those forever. There's going to be things that pop up and you're going to have to learn how to deal with it. And so exactly. for me, like I've gone away from happiness and more towards this idea of I want to feel alive. And the more I feel alive, the more um, ready I'm going to be to handle the ups and downs of life or my career. And I'm actually going to appreciate like when I don't get a client and the sadness that that brings me. And I'm going to sit in that for a little bit and, and just be in that. Because then when I do get a client that I love working with, I'm going to feel that much more fulfilled. And so it's almost as if, yes, we are trying to lean more towards happiness and sadness. We're trying to lean more towards function than dysfunction. And we also have to have an acceptance and an awareness that those things are going to pop up. And when they do pop up, let's be ready for them. And I'll give you this quote that uh, somebody said, uh, I sometimes host panels for my clients. And this guy was a successful Wall Street guy. And he now does some nonprofit work. And he said, I don't want to guard my kids from bad things. I want them to learn how to deal with those bad things. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's, it's true. If you start to be aware that bad things are going to happen, then it's an acceptance of that. And now we can do something with it. Uh, I just went on a rant, but I'm curious to get your perspective on philosophically what I'm talking about. It's called toxic positivity. That's what they, that's what it's called. And it, it's that you can get into this happiness that I'm going to be happy. And every day I'm going to be smiley face. And what if I'm not smiley face? Does that mean I'm not, I'm really not fulfilled? No, the reality is stuff happens. You know, we just say something else in the Marine Corps, but stuff happens. Right. And, and you have to be ready for that. And this idea of the, so the idea of toxic positivity is being overly smiley face. And there's, a, there's a, somebody's written on this recently. I can't remember if it's a book or an article, but you might want to Google toxic positivity. There's a, there's a, there's stuff that's been written on it. And I, and, and it really has made me think, you know, I, when I, when I uh, give lectures on positive leadership, I do, I do, I do stuff for TSA and lots of large organizations and, I'm thinking I, I now I, I bring in this idea of toxic positive. You don't have to be happy 100 percent of the time. Stuff's going to happen to you. You're going to fall. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get fired. You're going to get hired. Stuff happens all the time. You got to be ready to deal with that. Um, you certainly want to have a, a more positive, constructive attitude toward it. But it, you have to learn to accept the fact that it's, it's not going to be full of hearts and roses. Experiments fail. That's why they call them experiments. And exper you, what you want to do is fail and fail and fail, but fail forward to try to make some progress, you know, but, but don't, don't get caught up in this, this overly, you know, hearts and rainbows kind of stuff. That's nuts. I mean, you it's just not the way life happens. Yeah. And actually positive psychology, I think is, is titled very poorly. Um, I think yeah. in another world, maybe those brilliant minds would have focused on something else because we're talking about stuff like resilience, which. Yeah. It, more it, resilience it, than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, 
you know, something else. Sometimes the branding doesn't match actually the brilliance of, of the work. Um, but Hey, look, Steve, this has been a blast. Uh, sure. you know, we've talked about partnership, a bunch teams, leadership. Uh, I think you and I are, are rowing a boat, a canoe in the same direction to use yeah. your analogy earlier. And, and hopefully we tip one way and tip back the other way and, and keep, keep rowing. Um, but this has been awesome. Uh, looking forward to meeting you in person sometime soon as well. Sure. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, where's the best place for them to be able to do that? I would just say, just Google my name, Steve Gladys, and, uh, you know, LinkedIn comes up and my website comes up and, and I'm happy to talk to anybody who has any questions at any time. I'm a teacher at heart. So when people want to know, I'm happy to talk. Yeah. It's interesting. One of my questions for you is going to be teaching versus coaching versus leading. Cause it seems like you are passionate about all three. Yeah. And so I think you're also, and, and, and writing. So I think you have multiple identities, which is what makes you unique and, and fun to talk with. And I do recommend people check out Steve's work uh, on LinkedIn. He's very active. He's posting there. He's, he's engaging on there. Um, so I enjoy following him there and, and recommend checking him out. I'm on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. And then Twitter's the other place. I think I like to play. I've always said I like to play, but it's the end of 2022. And, and I just tweeted this recently. I'm like, man, the Twitter feed is forget Elon Musk and what anyone thinks about him. Lightning rod. I understand that. But my Twitter feed is starting to turn into what my Facebook feed used to look like. And I spend way less time on Facebook these days. I just feel like there's more and more garbage coming through my Twitter feed. And like you, what I loved about Twitter is I'd always get exposed to new research and new concepts and new ideas and articles and videos. And I, I would be more well-educated. And uh, for now I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Um, I hope I will continue to be in 2023, but um, yeah, it's, I just can see some changes there that aren't as exciting for me. They're just not as exciting. I agree. Well, Steve, I appreciate it, Brian. Thanks very much. Great questions. Great sense of curiosity that you have. Keep doing what you're doing. It's kind of cool. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The story about Henry Ford, and they, it, it was a lawsuit um, involving Henry Ford at one point, and um, the guy was asking him all these questions about what he knew and what he didn't know, and he said, look at Ford said to him, he said, look at it. I, there's a phone on my on my desk now. These phones no longer exist, <laughs> but go back. And he said, there are 10 buttons on that phone. He said, if I, any button I push, I can get the answer to any problem I need.